Is this thing working? Oh, there we go. That's perfect. I feel like I'm plugged into the matrix. Um, hello, everybody. I hope you're all well. Um, interestingly, Mel, you were talking about the, the power of worship, and this week I read a quote by um, uh, Charles Spurgeon, and I'm going to get it wrong now, but basically he said something like this, I've made this observation that words sung inflame the heart all the more. Now, I know that's lovely brevity from somebody that can really speak the English language well, but um, I think that's, that's a great encouragement to us. And obviously, he was talking about truth there. Singing theology, singing the sermon um, seems to wake up your heart all the more. So sing it whenever you can. And hopefully, I'll come up with some nice lines that you can turn into verses of a song and, and sing them today. So we're in Mark. And um, it's going to be a long haul in Mark, but a, a great walk through Mark. So what I'm not going to do is summarize what we've been through already in the first five sections of our sermon series, which is all about Jesus. But I am going to pick up on one thing. So if you want to figure out where we're at and the context of what I'm talking about today, go back on the website. All of the, the sermons are there and you can pick up um, the information you need there. But I am going to pick up on this that Mark is the book of action. Um, Mark doesn't spend a lot of time dwelling on, on theology. He doesn't spend a lot of time dwelling on concepts. And what he really doesn't do is leave you much space between the action. It feels like things are just happening one after the other. It's, it's full, of, full of energy. Um, and there are no quiet points. There's no sleeping. There's no passing of days. And the point is that it can feel like Mark is just bang, 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 bang. But it's, it's not. There is time. There is space. In this section, I'm going to be talking about four, um, four encounters between Jesus and the crowd and the, the, the Pharisees. And um, what I want you to know is that there was space between those moments. It wasn't like he was standing up on stage and had four different conversations all in a row with those people. There was space. With that in mind, where are we going today? What's, what's the big idea? And this is in the context of opposition already building up. We've seen that already in last week's preach. And while that opposition is building up, what we're going to see today is that Jesus has already counted the cost. And what we're going to see today as well is that he has, he expects his followers to do the same. He expects us to count the cost. So there's going to be a lot going on in this, in this text. There's going to be some really interesting things that we could look at in those four encounters and the two illustrations that Jesus gives. But I'm going to focus on this big idea. Otherwise, we could be here all week talking about the richness that is in this piece. Um, so we're going to look at, at that. We're going to look at the fact that this is already early on in his ministry. Well, not, it's early on. It's chapter two. He hasn't even announced his 12 disciples yet. That's going to happen next when Stuart preaches on Sunday next week. Um, and already it is clear that his mission is going to end in his death and that he is actively making choices that will bring about that death. 
Then there's a secondary point that I do want to look at, I want to spend a little bit of time on, and it's another theme that's very apparent in this text, and that is that legalism brings death. That's explicit in this text. What is implied and perhaps sometimes missed is that so does liberalism. Liberalism and legalism both result in death. And you could say, Jeremy, where, where do you see that? And I will get there. But before we get there, I'd like to talk about a cathedral and a particular cathedral. Can anyone tell me which cathedral that is? Barcelona? Yeah. The Basilica della Sagrada Familia. I hope I got that right. <laughs> I've been practicing all week. And a few facts about the Basilica della Sagrada Familia. By comparison, this is a very modern uh, cathedral. In fact, they haven't even finished building it yet. So they are, are planning to, to finish this building in 2026, and then there's still going to be another 30 years of decorative stuff going on after that. It was designed by Antonio Gaudi, and I had the pleasure of studying Gaudi for a little bit while I was learning to be a graphic designer. He was a Catalonian architect and artist, and if you have a look, you'll notice that um, it's kind of got the soaring form and there's very natural shapes. He had this kind of obsession about nature, and he didn't really like straight lines, and so this cathedral is quite unique in, in its architecture. They started construction in 1882. So that was 140 years ago. It took Gaudi, while he was alive, more than 12 years to take his plans and render them as, as three-dimensional geometric models because he knew that it would take, it, it, it would not be completed by the time he died. So he went to great pains to make sure that these models were ready for whoever was going to take over from him. Um, and and be able to complete the cathedral in, in keeping with his original vision. And the vision for that cathedral was to be a, a soaring visual of the, the life of Christ. So by the time of Gaudi's death, only one facade and less than a quarter of the exterior was completed. So he basically committed his life to this project and he barely saw any of it by the time that that he passed away. And when Gaudi was asked why the project was taking so long, he, he snidely said, my client is not in a hurry. <laughs> so it took a long, long time, and it's still going on. And, and I'm, I'm sure if you go to Barcelona, you can go in and you can have a look. I would love to be there when it is complete and we can see the whole thing. Um, and the original vision that, that Gaudi had for it, which was really a, a, an exaltation of God. I mean, you, you do that for the glory of God. You don't do that because it's going to make you money. And that's, that's what's really hard to figure out. How much do you think it's cost so far to build this cathedral? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. What we do know is currently it costs 27 million US dollars a year to continue building this cathedral. 27 million US a year. Hold on to that for a bit. We're going to go into the text. David, can you please read the first bit of our text for us? Um, Stuart's going to come up to you with the microphone, but it's, 
It's um, Mark 2, verse 18 to 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot as long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshunken cloth onto an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Thanks, David. Okay, so we've got John and his, John, sorry, we've got John's disciples and we've got the Pharisees and they were fasting. That's what was happening. And I, I guess the question we've, we have to ask first is, shall I move? Is this a bad spot? <laughs> That's not the question we should be asking. The question we should be asking is, is why? What was... What was going on at this time? Was this a special time in the calendar or, or did they simply like, like fasting a few days a week? And, and funnily enough, it's the latter. It's not as flippant as that, but, but the Pharisees had made a point of fasting very, very regularly at this point in history as a sign of their devotion. Um, was there a legal, as in God's law, reason or requirement to be fasting? No, there, there wasn't. It was accepted practice at the time uh, for devout believers, but it wasn't law. The only day that fasting was required by God's law was the Day of Atonement or or Yom Kippur. So, So the crowd was asking, but they were asking because it was expected, and Jesus was meant to be a devout teacher, and therefore his disciples should have been fasting as well as John's disciples and the Pharisees, but they weren't. And instead of the crowd asking the disciples, they did what the crowd assumed to be right. The disciples would be following the instruction of their teacher, so instead of wasting their time talking to the disciples, they just go straight to Jesus and they ask him, why are your disciples not fasting when everyone else is? And he gives them a cracker of an answer, doesn't he? Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Well, obviously not. You don't fast at a celebration. We've got a wedding celebration happening this afternoon, and I certainly hope we won't be fasting. Will we? No. Okay, good, excellent. We celebrate while we fast, and we celebrate while the bridegroom is, is with us. But what is all this talk about a bridegroom? Jesus, we didn't know you were getting married. Who is the lucky lady? And of course, he was referring to himself as the bridegroom, but not of somebody. He was referencing his father. In the Old Testament, God himself refers to himself as the bridegroom of Israel. God is Israel's bridegroom. There's a whole book where he talks about how unfaithful his bride is and how faithful he is to the covenant between 
himself and her being Israel. So it's veiled, but if you think about it a bit, it's obvious that what Jesus is doing here is using a, a wonderful illustration to talk about celebration, and so therefore there shouldn't be fasting, but he's also at the same time revealing to the crowd that he is the God of Israel, that he's not just a teacher, that he's not just a prophet, but that he is the promised Messiah. And so therefore, it's not fitting for his disciples to be fasting, they should be celebrating because the Messiah, the promised one, is with them. This is not the time to be pious and to be, to be contrite. This is the time for celebration. But then he says this, didn't have to say it, but he says this, the day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and they will fast in that day. That's when it will be fitting. So, Duncan, bridegrooms are not normally taken away from the party. They're not normally taken away from their guests. That's a very strange thing for Jesus to say. Usually, the guests leave the celebration, and then the bridegroom retires with his wife. So what is all this talk of being taken away from them, and then they will fast. And this is really what I want to focus on today, because Jesus doesn't do this once. He does this twice in this section. He foreshadows his own death. He, he offers the information willingly. It, it wasn't needed to answer the question. I'm sure the crowd and the disciples at the time had no clue what he was on about. They were probably scratching their heads. But as we look back at this recollection of of Peter's, we can see that Jesus was aware from the outset that his mission on earth would require the laying down of his life. From the very beginning, and that he had resolved that the cost was worth paying. In fact, in Hebrews, the writer tells us as much. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says this, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Wow. I don't know how many times you read a, a text like that and you just think, wow. And then he continues. He continues with some illustrations of mending clothes and making wine. And I remember hearing these illustrations for the first time and thinking, what on earth? Because, I mean, I never had to mend clothes. I don't know about you guys. I, I, I was spoiled. I never really had to make wine, especially not with wineskins. So I wasn't quite sure what he was on about. But um, I can't dwell on these too long, but I do want to say this. Those illustrations were a profound picture of the religious state of Israel at the time, the condition of the faith of the people of Israel at the time, especially the religious leaders. Essentially what Jesus was implying is, is that the revelation that he brings of who Messiah actually is, who, who God's chosen one actually is, will, will tear Judaism as it was at that time apart. So the, the upshot is, is um, if you put 
a new piece of fabric that hasn't shrunk on an old garment, it will shrink and tear the garment. So this new revelation will tear the old situation, the old, the old context. The wineskins, the old wineskins would have been brittle, and I didn't know this, but it wasn't actually fermented wine that they put in the wineskins, it was new wine, and the wine would ferment in the wineskins and stretch the skins. And if they were old and brittle, they would tear and leak and spoil everything. Oh, it makes sense now, doesn't it? This revelation that Jesus was bringing was going to rip Judaism as it was apart. Not the Old Testament, not the prophets, but the mountain of traditions that men had added to the law and the prophets, so to try and clarify what was meant by the law. I mean, you know these kinds of questions. I hear them asked, not these particular ones, but every day at work, we say something like, let's make sure we do this, and then a bunch of questions come back to try and clarify what it is exactly that we mean. And in this time, it was, so what does it mean exactly to love your neighbor? I mean, is that the person over the river? Is it the person next door? Is it people of our ethnicity? Is it, is it, is it, is it, is it? Is it, um, and so what does it mean to keep the, the Sabbath holy? Come on, I say, you say we mustn't work on the Sabbath, but what constitutes work? Is getting out of bed work? Is, is um, harvesting a field work? What exactly do you mean? And what about fasting and praying? You know, what does it look like to be holy and, and to pray well and to fast properly? All of that tradition is what I'm talking about. What, what Jesus' revelation was going to do was rip that apart. The Pharisees were really good at sticking to all of it, and they were really good at looking down at others that couldn't and struggled with it. And that's the second point, really. That's what I mean by legalism. Legalism isn't, it's not people that know their Bible well and want to do what it says. That's not legalism. Legalism is adding to the message of the Bible and then weighing people down with a, a burden that they cannot bear. It's extra biblical expectation. It's like saying Jesus came and he made a way for us to be saved and Paul says that we're saved through, through, through that alone, through faith alone in what Jesus did. And then legalism is, and you have to act like this, otherwise you won't be saved. That's legalism. Especially when it comes to earning salvation. And by now the the spirit of the gospel that's already there in the Old Testament was all but lost under this mountain of expected observance, which was contrived by men, well-intentioned, but by now it was, it was killing the Pharisees, it was killing the people of Israel, and it would bring about the death of their Messiah. So I mean literally, legalism brings death, not just spiritually, it was going to result in the death of Jesus. Okay, right, who's going to read the second bit for me? Paul, do you mind reading the next part of our text, Mark 2, verse 23 to 28? Uh, one Sabbath, he was going through the cornfields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck ears of corn. 
And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Thanks, Paul. Okay, the Sabbath. So let me just make one thing clear. The Pharisees were not wrong here. Strictly speaking, they were breaking the law of no work on the Sabbath. It might seem petty to us, but plucking ears of corn was considered work. Remember, this is an agricultural society, and I'm going to move back here before the echo drives us all bonkers. Um, and, and plucking corn was a work thing. It wasn't a leisurely thing that we might do when we go for a walk through a field and steal some of the farmer's grain. And Jesus doesn't say, nah, nah, that, this isn't breaking the law. He, he, he simply points out that if they're going to pick him and his disciples up on this contravention, then they'll also need to address what their greatest king, David, did while he was on the run from King Saul. A different situation, but the same thing. He broke the law. David also broke the law, strictly speaking. He did it to sustain him and to sustain his men. And Jesus and his disciples were simply, at the end of the day, picking a little bit of corn to, to probably eat on their walk. And then Jesus says this profound thing. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath was a gift. It was a, a gift that God had given to humankind. It was never intended to be a, a burden on humankind. It was meant to be a time where, where we could stop and remember God's work in creation and honor Him in that. And it was also a time for men to take a rest after six hard days graft. And by men, I mean people. Six hard days of graft. And then the Sabbath comes and you can have a rest. It was a blessing and a gift to us. So again, this is a, a point to the Pharisees that their legalism is, is causing them to, to break other laws. It's causing them to be bitter. It's causing them to put an unbearable weight on God's people, and it's missing the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law, at the end of the day, was to, to make people realize that they needed a savior. It was to cause them to to look towards the promised Messiah who would deliver them. It was, it was meant to work with the gospel, not put such a heavy burden on them that they felt that they were, were going to fail and that they had no chance of succeeding. And then he adds again, a bit of information that's not required, that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And you could just imagine the Pharisees. I mean, they've been accusing him of blasphemy all this time, and then he says that. I mean, 
If you're, any, if you're in any doubt of who Jesus was saying he was, I mean, he forgives sins, he heals bodies, he delivers evil spirits, and now he says, I am the one who owns the Sabbath. You decide who I think I am. Okay, next bit of the text. Pete, do you mind reading for me Mark 3, verses one through six? Stuart's on his way. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Thanks, Pete. Okay, so he enters the synagogue. Remember what I said about all of this action? He enters the synagogue on the Sabbath, but it's probably not the same one we read about earlier. And conveniently, there was a man there with a withered hand. Now, I can't say this for certain, but it certainly looks like a setup to me, doesn't it? I mean, come on. Jesus turns up at a synagogue and it seems like they've pulled out the withered hand man to stand in front of Jesus and they are all watching. They're all watching. Why? Because this is, this is what Jesus does. He says things that are remarkable. He gathers people to himself and then he goes and blows it by healing people on the Sabbath. And Jesus knows exactly what's going on. He knows that they are watching him. And he knows that they are going to want to discredit him as a lawbreaker when he does what he feels compelled to do. And so he, he uses this as an opportunity to point out the irony. Remember I was talking that this, this pedantry of the, of the Pharisees to, to obey the law actually causes them to break even more serious laws? He's gonna do it here. He calls the man to him and he asks them, he asks the people that are watching and waiting and he says, is it lawful to do good or harm on the Sabbath? It's the kind of trick that they used against him quite often. This is a closed question, you've got to choose. Good or harm, is it lawful to do good or harm on the Sabbath? To save life or kill? So this is a question of two parts. And I'm pretty sure the last part is not about the man because he has a withered hand. There's no indication that he's about to die. So what Jesus is going to do for the man is not um, saving his life. The first part is about that man. Is it lawful to do good or harm? The second part is about Jesus. And it's about the evil that is at work in the Pharisees own heart at that moment. They want to accuse him of breaking the law because he is going to heal someone on the Sabbath, but in their hearts, 
they are breaking another law. You shall not murder. Yet, he was looking for a change of heart. In the text, we see that he was grieved by their silence. He was grieved by the hardness of their hearts. He was inside. This is an interesting thing about the will of God. He knows where they're going, but all the time he's wishing that they would go differently. And he's grieved by the hardness of their heart. And immediately he does what he knows they want him to do. He restores the man's hand and the Pharisees withdraw to plot his death. So this is the second time that Jesus foreshadows his own death. And it's the third time that he points out that the Pharisees' pride in their traditions have caused them to be very, very far away from God. Right. Toyn, could you please read the last piece of our text for today? So that's um, Mark 3, verses 7 through to 12. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd followed from Galilee, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea and the regions across Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him, for he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God, but he gave them sweet orders not to tell others about him. Thank you, Toyn. Right, and that's, that's where we end today. Jesus withdraws from, withdraws from the crowd, withdraws with his disciples. He's looking for some quiet and some peace but in Markian style, we don't even get to see that space. It's bam, straight in there. There's a whole bunch of people after Jesus. Um, there's this large crowd that gathers from Galilee. And then there's a weird time warp, I think, because all of a sudden there's crowds from all over the place coming to him. And it feels like everything's accelerating around Jesus. And he's growing in popularity and he's healing people and he's delivering them from their demons, and the demons are declaring that he is the son of God, and he's telling them to keep quiet because, again, he has this idea, that, well, there's this picture of Israel has an idea of what Messiah is, and he does, it's not, they're not ready to hear about that yet. So this, this whole thing is just escalating. As the opposition is escalating, Jesus' popularity is escalating, his, his, um, his miracles, his signs and wonders, his declaring of the kingdom, all of that is, is going, getting, getting more and more popular. And, and basically, he's blowing up the internet. But at the same time, the Pharisees are plotting to snuff out his light. So what can we learn from this, this piece? What can we learn? Firstly, as I said, legalism is a killer. We live in a world that is complicated and we can feel paralyzed by the many options that face us. We often hear a cry for clarity, explain exactly what I need to do. The, the choice is too difficult. Just tell me what I'll do and I'll do it. 
um, just spell it out for me. And I, I completely understand the, the tendency to do this. And, and that is kind of where Israel was at the time of Jesus. They had so many documents breaking down the law of God into minute detail, but in the process, they'd completely lost the spirit of the law. They'd completely lost the story of the, sorry, the spirit of the great story of God. And, and that is legalism. It's, it's adding requirements over and above what God has laid out to judge whether someone is in or, or out, and it kills people. And you might say, well, the Pharisees were, were horrible people. They're Pharisees today. There's Pharisees in the church and there's Pharisees outside the church. Every day that I watch the news, I can see the Pharisees pointing out the minute details of failure amongst people that we look at on a daily basis. And the, the, I suppose if you, you kind of get to that point and you say, okay, well, fine. Legalism is bad, so we, we're going to get rid of legalism. We're going to swing the other way because if legalism's bad, liberalism must be good. And I'm not talking about political liberalism. I'm talking about the polar opposite of legalism here. It's, it's, it's this idea that I'm okay just to be me. Jesus loves me for who I am, and I don't need to change because he died on the cross and paid for my sins, and I can carry on. I don't need to feel bad about anything inside of me. I just need to be able to carry on knowing that Jesus loves me. The problem is you go to bed at night and you feel bad about you because there's something else going on here. Liberalism also adds to the gospel. In a sense, it's another form of legalism. It takes the good news of Jesus Christ and it adds something else on top which says that actually you don't need a savior at all. You're like the Pharisees. In the previous section when Jesus said, I came for the sick, not for the healthy, because the sick need a physician, what's required is that the sick know they are sick, not like the righteous or those that thought they were healthy. So liberalism is a denial of the fact that you're, you're sick. And Jesus offers a third way, and that's his way. It's it's that, it's, it's, it's what's, what's meant by being a disciple. It's, it's following him. A disciple imitates their teacher. They do not do whatever they want, and they definitely do not accept the lie that this is just the way I am. This is just who I am, and I'm going to embrace it and live this way. They desire to please their Lord and to be shaped in his image. And and this is what theologians call sanctification. If you want to put this in a box, we're talking about salvation, but we're not talking about justification. We very often talk about justification in this church because it's amazing that Jesus came and he died for us. And as soon as we accept that, we're instantly, instantly saved. That's justification. And it's a legal thing. But this is sanctification we're talking about now. It's also salvation. This is a journey of becoming more and more and more like Jesus. And this, this leads me on to my main point. When Jesus called his disciples, when he called John and James, when he called Simon and Andrew and Levi, who we call Matthew now, he called them to imitate him. He 
He called them to learn from him and become like him. And the first thing they needed to do was count the cost, didn't they? They had to put down everything. They had to leave the family business and they had to devote themselves to a life of serving him. At that point, they probably didn't know that it was gonna cost them their lives. But they did have to count the cost and lay things down in the same way that Jesus did. So remember that scripture I quoted at the beginning in Hebrews. Here's it, here it is in context. Hebrews 12, verse one through three. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Look to his example so that you may not grow weary. The writer's reminding us of the reason that motivated Jesus to endure the cross in order to encourage us when the going is tough. The implication is the going will be tough. And the going for the Hebrews was very tough. He goes so far as to say, uh, you, none of you have lost your lives just yet, so carry on. He says, be like Jesus, count the cost, but count it in the light of eternity, not the here and the now. Stop measuring eternal benefit by temporal cost-benefit analysis, if that makes sense. Can you see what you're going to gain if you persevere through these hard times? Can you see that it is all worth it? A cathedral will never get off the drawing board these days because it's, there's just no way on earth that the costs will ever be recuperated. The cathedral, cathedral may point to something eternal, but it's firmly rooted in the temporal. It's, it may last for hundreds of years, but at some point it's going to crumble. But when it comes to our calling, what God has called each and every one of us to, we've got to do that cost-benefit analysis in terms of eternity. What we do now will count for all time. And we do it with too short a time frame. And if we don't see the benefit this side of death, we deem the cost to be too great. What does it say about us? What does it say about us that when the Lord gives us an eternal calling, we turn around and say, but Lord, the cost is too great. What in this lifetime could ever outweigh the joy of an eternity in almighty God's presence? And yet that is what many of us do. Maybe we don't use those words. Probably we say, Lord, I'm not sure I heard you right. I'm gonna pray on that. Sounds a bit tough, couldn't be you. Are you really telling me to leave my family? That doesn't sound like God. Those are the things we say, but actually what's going on in our hearts the cost is too great. Right, worship team, can you come up? There are people in this room that will plant churches. There are people who will shake up workplaces. There are people that will shift local communities, that will challenge their families and families around them. There are people here who will be gifted preachers and worshipers. 
and prayers. And there are people here who will prophesy and teach. There are people here who will draw alongside the weak and the poor and the downtrodden and they will lift them up. There are those of you who are listening to painful cries and you will offer support. There are those that will embrace the despised and the rejected and you will point them to a God where they, where they didn't, who they didn't know they needed. You're all here. You're all here now. And you're probably in one of three places. You haven't even started. You either, you're not a Christian or you may call Jesus savior, but you know that you can't call him Lord yet. You haven't obeyed the great commission. It is still all about you and how he has saved you and how he loves you. Some of you have been in this place for a long time and it's time to count the cost. And then there's some of you that are saying, I don't know, I, I don't know what my calling is. God hasn't said anything to me about going to Mongolia and living in a hut with nomads roaming the Gobi Desert. That's a word for someone, perhaps. Perhaps not, perhaps not. But he has said this, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. I promise you, you cannot pray it away. It's written in scripture and it's a commission to you, each and every one of you. Start there, start with that. That is all of our calling. And you know what? Most of you are not going to be killed because you've obeyed God. You might be belittled. You might not have the career you dreamed of. You might find yourself short of cash. I'm not trying to diminish these challenges. There are many and they are heavy, believe me. If you wanna ask me about my story or ask Stuart about his story and coming and doing what God has called us to do, we'd be really happy to tell you about it, warts and all. It's tough, but it's worth it. So you're that second group, you're willing to make yourself available, but you don't know you don't know where to start or what to do. Let's spend some time to, this morning praying for you, praying that God will speak to you and ignite the fire of that calling in your heart. And then there's a third group and you've started, you have started and it's hurting. You're exhausted, you're disappointed, you're grieving. For you, the time, you, you just need time. You need time under his wing, you need him to come and remind you of the call that he gave you. You need him to remind you of the time that you sat back and you counted the cost and you remembered the benefit in light of eternity. Let's stand. Let me read this again. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Lord, I lift up each and every person in this room. Lord, I myself am standing before you and Lord, I ask that you, you help us to look towards you. And as we read these sorts of stories and, and marvel at, at what you did, Lord, we'd be reminded that every time we read, it's a challenge to us as your disciples. Lord, I pray that as we spend time worshiping and exalting you now, that you would also work in our hearts, that you'd reignite that flame. Lord, if we, if we have not listened yet, Lord, that you'd ignite the flame of being called and, and, and responding to, to you and doing what you have asked. If we don't know, Lord, I pray for direction. I pray that you would guide us, that you would show us a picture of what we need to do in the short term, medium term, and long term. What is it that we do to do this afternoon or tomorrow? And Lord, for those of us that have walked this walk and are now feeling the cost that we counted in the beginning, Lord, I pray that your ministering spirit would come and work in our hearts, refresh us, re-inspire us, embolden us again. In Jesus' name.